John 13, first verse. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour was come, that he should depart out of this world unto the Father, having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. And supper being ended, the devil having now put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he was come from God and went to God, he riseth from supper, laid aside his garments, and took a towel, and girded himself. After that he poureth water into a basin, and began to wash the disciples' feet, and to wipe them with the towel wherewith he was girded. Then cometh he to Simon Peter, and Peter saith unto him, Lord, dost thou wash my feet? Jesus answered and said unto him, What I do thou knowest not now, but thou shalt know hereafter. Peter saith unto him, Thou shalt never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I wash thee not, Thou hast no part with me. Simon Peter saith unto him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus saith to him, He that is washed needeth not save to wash his feet, but is clean every whit, and ye are clean, but not all. For he knew who should betray him, therefore said he, Ye are not all clean. So after he had washed their feet, and had taken his garments, and was set down again, he said unto them, Know ye what I have done to you? Ye call me Master and Lord, and ye say, Well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, ye also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example, that ye should do as I have done to you. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord, neither he that is sent greater than he that sent him. If ye know these things, happy are ye if ye do them. I speak not of you all. I know whom I have chosen, but that the Scripture may be fulfilled. He that eateth bread with me hath lifted up his heel against me. Now I tell you, before it come, that when it is come to pass, ye may believe that I am he. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that receiveth whomsoever I send, receiveth me. And he that receiveth me, receiveth him that sent me. Amen. We know the Lord himself will add his blessing on to the reading of His Word tonight. And yes, we are back into not John 13, though we will refer to it on the way through. We're back to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew 6, and we're looking tonight at verse 12, or at least at the first part of verse 12, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, and forgive us our debts. We'll pray again. Heavenly Father, we call upon Thy name. Pray that Thou wilt manifest 
thy grace and love towards us, and that we, as we commune with thee, and seek a word for our heart, that our hearts will be opened, our minds will be receptive, and that we shall receive benefit from thy truth this evening. Come and answer prayer. Lead us forward to magnify and lift up thy blessed and holy name. We pray for Jesus' sake. Amen. And forgive us our debts. Here we have a petition that every Christian needs to include in his or her prayer time. I reckon we just don't think enough about this truth that it's most essential, it's most blessed, and the most difficult thing that God ever did was to provide forgiveness for the sins of His people. Forgiveness of sins is most essential, because what it does is it keeps us out of an eternal hell, and it gives us reason for joy as we live in this life. It is also most essential and blessed also because it introduces us to an eternal fellowship with God, one that goes on forever. Most essential, most blessed. And we need to remind ourselves, most difficult as well, because this is not a small thing. It cost the Son of God His life to bring forgiveness to you and to me. Sin, we know, is a twofold effect. In the future, it damns men forever. But in the present, the effect of sin is that it robs us of the fullness of spiritual life. And what it does is it brings a burden of guilt pressing down upon our conscience. It's the major problem, this sin in the lives of men and women, and it needs a solution. Whenever sin remains unforgiven, then the guilt and the condemnation that is mounting and becoming mountainous, that is shouldered by the conscience, and it weighs it right down with a terrible impact. Even William Shakespeare, and I'm sure most of us have long left him behind on some shelf back in secondary school, and he wasn't by any means a theologian, but he realized that the mind and the body of a sinner as well could be sick and affected as a result of unconfessed and unforgiven sin. I remember probably my favorite uh, play of his that I studied in school, maybe because it was quite dark and dismal and whatnot, and then you could link it into some uh, Scottish castle up in the north near Aberdeenshire, and we had Lady Macbeth. So we had the story of Macbeth. And in that play, he writes about the struggle and the anxiety that Lady Macbeth felt when she had helped in the murder of King Duncan I of Scotland. And she took all kinds of disorders in her mind due to this unconfessed murder. She called for a doctor to come in to look to her, and that doctor turned after examining her, and he told Macbeth, not so sick my Lord, as she is troubled with thick-coming fancies that keep her from her rest. 
Then Macbeth responded because he couldn't bear the conditions that she was in. And he says back to the doctor, Canst thou not minister to a mind diseased? Pluck from the memory a rooted sorrow. Reuse out the written troubles of the brain, and with some sweet oblivious antidote, cleanse the stuffed bosom of that perilous stuff that weighs upon the heart. But of course, there was no answer the doctor could bring for the kind of malady that she had. Our Savior In teaching us to pray here, He reminds us, here's something that you need to be praying for, and forgive us our debts. And you'll notice here that this is the first petition that has a bearing on the soul of man in this prayer. We thought the last time around, give us this day our daily bread, so relating to our body. But here's one that is directly relating to the soul. The word forgive appear six times in this prayer. We have it twice in verse 12, we have it another two times in verse 14, and again we have the final brace in the 15th verse, so six times in total. Forgive is mentioned here. So there's a clear emphasis and a message that we cannot possibly ignore. First major point tonight, the problem that this petition addresses, that problem, of course, being sin. So, the problem the petition addresses, and forgive us our debts. It's in Matthew here, 6 and 12, that we have the use of the word debts. When we look to verse 14 and verse 15, we find another word is used, and that is the word trespasses, but both debts and trespasses speak of the one thing, and it's sin. Sin we will know from experience. As one old preacher said, it is the monarch that rules the heart of every man. It is the first lord of the soul, and its virus has contaminated every living being. He went on to say that sin is the degenerative power in humanity that makes man susceptible to disease, to illness, to death, and hell. It is the culprit in every broken marriage, every disrupted home, every shattered friendship, every argument, every pain, every sorrow, and every death. You can lay it on at the door of sin. So, no wonder then when the Bible discusses it, it calls it that accursed thing in Joshua 7, 13. And when we go to Romans, the chapter 3 and the verse 13, we have the venom of the snake coming from this thing called sin, and the stench of death is rising around it. So, what can be done about it? Emphasizing how difficult it is to deal with. We have the words of Jeremiah 13 and 23, can the Ethiopian change his skin, or the leopard his spots? Then may ye also do good that are accustomed to do evil. So it's a difficult issue. It's a major problem. And we know again from experience how sin dominates the life fills the mind, Romans 1 and 21, directs the will 
In Jeremiah 44, 15 to 17, we have an illustration and some teaching about that. And it also takes over the affections and the emotions, John 3 and the verse 19. So it dominates the life. It also brings us under the control of the devil. You'll know how in Ephesians 2, Paul is writing about all of us by nature. And he talks about us in these terms, that we were guided by the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works in the children of disobedience, directed like someone with that remote control. And they're just steering that drone in the sky and making it hover and tilt and rise and fall just by the controls they have on their remote control. And so the devil has got people, sinners, all of us, by nature, and he is steering us. We're under his control. Not only does sin do that, it puts us under God's wrath. Ultimately, while the devil feels he can do everything for us, the Lord, of course, is saying, this sin makes you a bullseye for the cannons and for the rifles of the judgment of God, and His sights are trained on us. And so in Ephesians 2 and 3, those who are in sin are labeled the children of wrath, appointed for God's fury. It subjects us to misery. In Job 5 and verse 7, we're told that man is born unto trouble as the sparks fly upward. In Isaiah 57 and 21, there is no peace, saith my God to the wicked. In Romans 8 and 20, again, the whole agitation that is brought about by sin, man's whole life is stained by it. So we have a deep problem. The word trespasses that we have in Matthew 6, 14, and 15, fundamentally means to slip or fall. And the emphasis here is on our inability, that we can't keep our feet, that we slide and down we go, as the psalmist put it in Psalm 73 in verse 2, but as for me, my feet but almost gone, my steps had well nigh slipped. And you and I will know even this side of conversion, we do slip, and we do stumble, and we do fall because of sin. Galatians 6 and 1, brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. The word debt, back to that in Matthew 6 and verse 12, it appears quite often in Scripture. Twenty-eight times you'll find it's flagging up a moral debt. And then we've got seven occasions where it's pointing to a financial debt. No matter how we look at sin, no matter what angle we're coming from, sin is a debt. And when we sin against God, we owe Him a colossal debt because every time we are violating His holiness. It's like a parent telling one of the children, you do that and you'll be punished. And now, of course, if you dare say that or even 
say or follow it up in public, then you'll be the one that'll be published or punished in the kind of and published too in the papers in the kind of society that we're in. And if the child keeps going that wrong path and in its defiance, it's teasing you almost, and I'll keep doing it. Maybe he's got you in a compromised position whereby you know you can't really do very much, and it knows it as much as you do, and it keeps going on and agitates. And you're just making a mental calculation. There's a debt that's going to be paid here, and it has to be paid. A.W. Pink said, as it is contrary to the holiness of God, sin is a defilement. Sin is a dishonor. Sin is a reproach to us. And as it is a violation of His law, it is a crime. And as to the guilt which we contact thereby, it is a debt. And because of our unrelenting sin, we owe such a massive debt to God, we cannot possibly repay it ourselves like that unfaithful servant that we read of in Matthew chapter 18, and he has accrued such a debt over his lifetime that there is no way that he is able now to repay it, and it's terrible for him. That is our problem. We are sinners who owe a debt that is so mammoth and monstrous that we can never hope to repay it ourselves. It's impossible for us. That's why when we turn to Psalm 130, in the verse 3 and verse 4, we are both frightened and humbled. We're grieving to read the words, but we're also gladdened. If thy Lord shouldest mark iniquities, O Lord, who shall stand? But there is forgiveness with thee. So we've looked at the problem. And that's the problem our Lord addresses here. Forgive us our debts. But then secondly, the provision that this petition asks. What's the answer? Here's the big issue, and it has to be addressed. What's the answer whereby it can be addressed? And if sin is the problem, and it is, then forgiveness is the answer. So in Matthew 6 and 12 we read, and forgive us our debts. Now, if forgiveness was not available, if it was a complete pipe dream, if we were destined just to drop further and further without reclamation, dying into the pit of sin, and there was no way out, our Lord would never have told us to pray like this. Forgive us our debts. Forgiveness is obviously available. Otherwise, He would have never encouraged us to ask for it. What is forgiveness? How do we define it? What does it mean for God to forgive me and you? To put it in simple terms, God is in forgiving. He is passing by our sin. He is wiping it off the record completely. He is setting us free from the punishment and the guilt that is due to that sin. And so in Micah 7, verse 18 and verse 19, we have these tremendous words. 
who is a God like unto thee, that pardoneth iniquity, and passeth by the transgression of the remnant of his heritage, he retaineth not his anger forever, because he delighteth in mercy. He will turn again, he will have compassion upon us, he will subdue our iniquities, and thou wilt cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. And a shorter statement in Jeremiah chapter 31, the verse 34, where the Lord promises, I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. So, what is forgiveness? It's the removal of our sin. Isaiah 53 and 6, the Lord hath laid on Him our iniquity. It's the covering for our sin. In Psalm 85 and 2, it's the blotting out of our sin. Isaiah 43 and verse 25, it's the forgetting of our sin, emphasized again in Hebrews 8 and the verse 12, and that's quoting the words in Jeremiah 31, the verse 34 that we've just mentioned. So what God does, literally does, He eliminates the remembrance and the trace of our sin. But a word of caution. If we ever reach the stage in our Christian experience where we can look upon forgiveness as something ordinary, we can be 100% sure that we've lost our joy and we've fallen upon a very dry place in our Christian lives. We can never afford to look upon this as a ordinary, run-of-the-mill thing, something that we should expect and doesn't cost God very much. We need to be thankful to Him for His forgiveness, possible only because of the life and the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. And many times we sweep over His life and we just jump to the cross when we're thinking about forgiveness. read a quote by R.C. Sproul today that's worth citing. He said, it is not simply that Jesus pays our debts for us by dying. His life is as important to us as His death. Not only does Christ take our sins, our debts, and our demerits, but He also gives us His obedience, His assets, and His merits. That's the only way an unjust person can ever stand in the presence of a just and holy God. When we think of forgiveness, there are two basic types. One we'll call judicial forgiveness. We're in the courtroom. God is the judge on this. God looks down and He says, you're guilty. You've broken my law. You must therefore be punished. But then He continues, looking over to our advocate, our substitute, and He says, Christ bore your punishment when He died on the cross. He took your guilt. He paid for your sin. The price is fully paid. And on the basis of what He has done, I declare you to be completely forgiven. 
And so we read in Ephesians 1 and 7, in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace. We go back to near the end of the New Testament to 1 John 2 and verse 12, I write unto you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for His name's sake. And in Ephesians 4 and 32, God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you due to the fact that he lived a perfect life, upheld God's law in every respect, was entirely pure, holy, innocent, not blameable or chargeable with any iniquity at all, due to the fact that he took all of our sins and on Calvary paid the complete price for them, we are judicially declared righteous when we believe in him, when we turn from our sin, when we lean on his finished sacrifice, declared righteous in Christ. That's what Almighty God says in his courtroom. Guilty as he looks at us. Of course we are, no doubt about it, but declared righteous because of the merits of Jesus Christ. We're justified forever. And so Romans 8 and 33 can be quoted, Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. There's a quite unusual epitaph. Engraved on a large headstone in a cemetery outside New York City. When you go up to the headstone, there's no mention of the person, when they were born, when they died. It doesn't say in loving memory of a beloved mother or father or husband or wife or brother or sister or son or daughter or anything like that. Just one word on the headstone, forgiven. Somebody wanted to show that they had died in peace, reconciled to God, were bound for heaven because they had been forgiven. Forgive us our debts. Of course, that Christian who begins to say that he doesn't sin, is in a pathetic situation because he's losing sight of the solution he needs. Those people who would teach us that in the Christian life you can aspire in your spiritual experience so that you're way up there in the clouds above everybody else without sin, looking down on all of us, inadequate, weak, feeling, stumbling saints. They have grasped a wicked weed of falsehood, and they're deluding themselves. Every child of God, while he remains in the body of flesh on earth, will continue to sin, and if he doesn't seek forgiveness, he will lose the meaningfulness of his relationship with God. And that's why we are to continue to pray, forgive us our debts. Then we'll think not only of judicial forgiveness, but parental forgiveness. The prayer we know begins with the words, Our Father. And therefore, 
I think I'm warranted in calling this parental forgiveness. And in this area, we're not dealing so much with God as judge, but He is a loving Father. Just because we have been judicially pronounced forgiven in the court of God does not mean that we stop sinning. We still sin. And although those sins have been forgiven and paid for in full, every sin will affect our relationship with God. The relationship itself doesn't end, but the intimacy of it can be lost. Take the child again in the family. And if they disobey you and deliberately go down the route that you told them you should not be going down, that sin that they're committing doesn't mean that you're no longer the parent and you're disowning them and all the rest of it, or that you lose your love for them. You remain the father or the mother, and there is at least some sense of forgiveness and a willingness to forgive built into your heart already, and you're yearning for them to come and deliver that apology, Dad, Mom, I'm sorry, and then the intimacy in the relationship is restored and blooms again. And that's what our Lord is talking about here in Matthew 6 and verse 12. Forgive us our debts. Great example in Psalm 51. David, a redeemed man, righteousness had been put to his account. The righteousness of Christ. He received all Old Testament saints were in the same way that every New Testament saint will ever be saved. Righteousness put to his account because he believed, he loved, he served the Lord. But during his life, he committed terrible sins. And then we have this earnest cry that is sobbed out of a broken heart in Psalm 51. And it makes it a abundantly plain that the intimacy of his relationship with God had not only been strained, but damaged severely by that sin. And so in verse 8 and verse 10 and 12, make me to hear joy and gladness that the bones which thou hast broken may rejoice. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation, and uphold me with thy free spirit. Now, this judicial forgiveness we talked about takes care of salvation itself. God's salvation isn't lost, isn't removed, isn't grasped away, uh, taken from the person, but parental forgiveness deals with this area, the joy of salvation. You can be saved and forgiven, but when you sin or not confessing it to the Lord, you lose the joy and the fullness of that relationship. There was another example we read out in our Bible reading tonight in John chapter 13. The sin of pride had bubbled to the surface in the lives of the disciples, and they're disputing among each other who should be the prominent, dominant person, the greatest among them. And in the middle of the argument, the Lord gives a pictorial representation of what they should be thinking about. And he takes the towel and the water, and he begins to wash their feet. John 13, the verse 4 and 5. And that's humiliating for Christ, and humiliating for them, because they should have been the ones to wash his feet. And he comes to Peter. And Peter says, Thou shalt never wash my feet. 
don't deserve that. Christ answers, have I washed thee not? Thou hast no part with me. And then Peter is effulgent now in his desire, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And our Lord responds in verse 10, He that is washed needeth not save to wash his feet, but is clean every whit. And in those days... Everybody took a bath in the morning. Then during the day, because they were wearing the open sandals and the dusty ground, they would have washed their feet from the mud and the grime and the dust of the roads whenever they came into a particular dwelling. And so our Lord here is taking this practice, and He's putting it into the form of an illustration, and He's teaching here the difference between judicial and parental forgiveness. You had your spiritual bath when you received salvation. All that is now necessary for me to do is to keep the fullness of that relationship open and uncluttered and alive and push the barriers down, sweep those added impurities out by washing your feet. And so I need to come before God every day and open my heart daily and plead with Him, Lord, forgive me my debts. Give me the forgiveness that will keep my life clean. Maybe you're saying, well, I'm having the same problem again and again and again and still going back to God asking for forgiveness. It's a bit like a confessional box scenario. And of course, we've read about many and wonderful confessional boxes over the years, and some almost on the point of being automated. And I'm sure they're just waiting for a robot to take over there and uh, come out with a few set phrases, because they'll be hearing on the other side the same things all the time. But God is not a God like the idols of paganism. In Nehemiah 9 and 17, I read of him, Thou art a God ready to pardon, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and of great kindness. I am assured in Micah 7 and 18 that he delighteth in mercy. And so Romans 5 and 20 can declare, But where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. He loves to forgive. And I know someone will allege... That type of teaching could ruin people, you know. Tell some believer that his sins are all covered for all eternity at the moment of his salvation, and you know what you'll be doing? You'll be generating green lights all over the place in his mind so that he can just go out and sin all he pleases without restriction, with full license, and he doesn't care because nothing is going to happen. Hold on a moment. Old Puritan preacher Richard Sibbs said the chief difference whereby one Christian differs from another is watchfulness. And the true child of God will want to be rising the level of watchfulness in his life. He'll be loving Christ. He'll be thanking Him for redeeming mercy. He'll not want to be twisting his Christian liberty into a carnal license. Love I much? I've much forgiven. I'm a miracle of grace. Lord, forgive us our debts. The problem this petition addresses, the provision this petition asks, and finally, the plea this petition activates. The plea 
this petition activates. Forgiveness, we receive it through the means of confession. And that's what Matthew 6 and 12 was all about, confession here, and forgive us our debts. You see, we can know all the theory about sin and forgiveness and God and grace, but we need to confess those sins to receive that forgiveness. Sin builds up a barrier, puts up a wall, shatters the intimacy of fellowship with God, and confession of sin it is that brings that barrier down. And so in 1 John 1 and verse 9 we read those familiar words, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What do we have in Proverbs 28, the verse 13? He that covereth his sins shall not prosper, but whosoever confesseth and forsaketh them shall have mercy, which is why we need to pray, forgive us our debts. To get back to David. He said to Nathan in 2 Samuel 12 and 13, I have sinned against the Lord. In 2 Samuel 24 and 10, I have sinned greatly in that that I have done. I have done very foolishly. In 1 Chronicles 21, 17, it is I that have sinned, and I have done it indeed. Isaiah, he comes and confesses his sin in Isaiah 6 and 5, as Daniel does in 9 and 20, as Peter does in Luke 5 and 8. Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. 1 Timothy 1 and 15, Paul is emphasizing this route to Timothy and those that would hear him confessing sin. Not easy, but always essential. And if it's not confessed... Hardness comes in. Hardness will lead to joylessness. One preacher said one of the surest antidotes or medicines to this process of moral hardening is the discipline practice of uncovering our sins of thought and outlook as well as word and deed and the repentant forsaking of them. I'm going to close tonight with a prayer that someone else has written. And I'm really not into written prayers. But they're from a book that I would highly recommend. It's called The Valley of Vision, a collection of Puritan prayers and devotions, and they're not intended when they were compiled that you should simply just slavishly pray them but that you think over the lines because they are deep, every single one of those prayers. And like our Lord's Prayer, they give us pointers, things to meditate upon. O God of grace, it begins, this particular one, Thou hast imputed my sin to my substitute and hast imputed his righteousness to my soul, the great exchange, clothing me with a bridegroom's robe, decking me with jewels of holiness." But in my Christian walk, I am still in rags. My best prayers are stained with sin. Need to remember that. My penitential tears are so much impurity. My confessions of wrong are so many aggravations of sin. My receiving the Spirit is tinctured with selfishness. And so he concludes, I need to repent. 
of my repentance. I need my tears to be washed. I have no robe to bring to cover my sins, no loom to weave my own righteousness. I am always standing clothed in filthy garments, Zechariah chapter 3, and by grace I'm always receiving change of raiment, for thou dost always justify the ungodly. I am always, he laments, going into the far country, and always returning home as a prodigal, always saying, Father, forgive me, and thou art always bringing forth the best robe. Every morning let me wear it, every evening return in it, go out to the day's work in it, be married in it, be wound to death in it. Stand before the great white throne in it. Enter heaven in it, shining as the sun. Then the final lines of that petition, Grant me never to lose sight of the exceeding sinfulness of sin, the exceeding righteousness of salvation, the exceeding glory of Christ, the exceeding beauty of holiness, the exceeding wonder of grace. And what this Puritan preacher has been praying is simply expanding on our Lord's instruction here in Matthew 6 and 12, and forgive us our debts. Let's bow in prayer.